This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Listening to Her Vantage here on BFM 89.9, the business station, and I'm Lily Chai. Women are still underrepresented in science, and according to UN's data, women are typically given smaller research grants than their male counterparts. So, does Malaysia reflect the same situation? Jessica Oisuying is a PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, and her project now revolves around developing a device to detect ovarian cancer. She's here to talk to me about her experience as a former pharmacist and a researcher here in Malaysia. So, uh, Jessica, what is the difference between a researcher for a science like you and versus a scientist? I don't think there is a difference. So it's, it's just, you know, terminology. Mm. But I believe if, if you're a, a researcher, you might not be limited to just science. Maybe you could be a social scientist, but you're still a researcher as well. So anything um, that involves research, uh, you know, collecting information uh, and then analyzing that information to prove a hypothesis, that's research. So it may not necessarily be in science, but if you are a scientist, then you're definitely a researcher in science. Yeah. Mm. It's not that stereotype of, you know, pouring chemical ingredients together and then, you know, being in the science lab and things like that. No, no. Okay, so uh, let's talk about you, right? So you are a registered pharmacist and you were uh, working as a pharmacist for seven years previously. And you are now a researcher for almost four years now. Now, this sounds like a very natural transition, right? But I don't think it's an easy journey and an easy transition as well. So tell me who or what was it that influenced your medicine and science journey? Because I remember, you know, loving science a lot when I was in high school. And then, but because I didn't have enough support in school, and then I, I had to face the music, right, when the results came out and the grades came out. It's like, you're not doing this. Okay, well, I would say that, like you, I, I always loved science. I find it fascinating. I had a lot of support from my parents growing up. I would say that I'm quite blessed because my father, especially, he, he took the time to uh, make sure that I really understood the basics so that my foundation would, would be later strong enough to build on. Being a Malaysian, I think we are focused on certain professions. So, you know, if you're good in science, people tell you you can be a, a doctor. You can be a pharmacist and I chose pharmacy first and foremost because I knew that being a doctor would involve having to work night shifts and on-call. Um, pharmacy just seemed like a way to to still be in the health science field, um, but without the kind of sacrifices. I'm the kind of person I just need my eight hours of sleep <laughs> at night. So, yeah, it was it was a practical practical decision. I, I don't I don't regret it. You know, patients would come in sometimes. You know, they have a condition that I wasn't taught in university, hmm. and that involves like research of my own, really. And I also went for a lot of training courses as a pharmacist to you know they, we call it continuing professional development. And yeah, this is very important as well because. In the, in the health science field, you, you don't just stop at university. It's a lifelong mm. journey. 
of learning and constantly updating what you already learned before. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you your work now is solely focused on developing a portable and inexpensive device to detect ovarian cancer cells, right? What is the reason behind this focus out of so many different studies out there? So the journey here was actually quite a serendipitous one. So initially, because being a pharmacist, the initial project that I chose to do was to, about a certain kind of receptor in our body. And the name of the receptor is the GPCR receptor. And um, the research project was supposed to be a computational modeling project revolving around this receptor. And yeah, just to mention that the first project was part of a scholarship. So there, there was like uh, limited options available for the scholarship. But um, this, the second time round, I was available to choose from projects that were not originally part of the scholarship package. So yeah, that's why I say it was serendipitous because then that's when I was introduced to my current supervisor, uh, Dr. New Siuyi. Uh, she's also a L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science winner. I was interested and intrigued in the work that her group was doing in terms of developing biosensors for cancer detection. So as we discussed further about where, where we should set our sights on, she asked me, is there any particular cancer that um, you are interested in working on? Also, when I started my PhD, actually I had a friend who passed away due to ovarian cancer. She was diagnosed an, uh, a year earlier and then I visited her in the hospital when, when the doctors actually confirmed that she had ovarian cancer. So she commenced treatment. She appeared to be doing better. You know, I went out for meals with her and uh, then all of a sudden, you know, things just deteriorated and uh, she passed away in um, 2019. I'm so sorry um, to that was that was quite a shock to me because she's about my age now when she passed away. And um, yeah, so when my supervisor asked me, is there any particular cancer that you're interested in? Um, I felt like this is one cancer that deserves attention. Uh, one, it's, it's a very difficult cancer to diagnose. Uh, a lot of people who, who have ovarian cancer don't have any symptoms or they have very vague ones like uh, indigestion, constipation, uh, abdominal pain, you know, is you know all those things that everybody experiences now and again, uh, or bloating. So you know, a lot of women might just think that uh, it's nothing, you know, and then it you know it just keeps progressing. And when they do get diagnosed, it's quite late stage. So the survival rate of uh, patients with this cancer uh, drops drastically the later that it is discovered. So um, what you're trying to, I guess, invent or create now is something that is inexpensive, that is accessible to all women out there so that they could detect ovarian cancer anytime that they want instead, rather than, you know, needing to go to the hospital or go through like a whole, a whole complicated process and a very expensive one as well. Well, it has this um, diagnostic feel that we call point of care diagnostics. So basically, it's um, the ability to diagnose a screen for a certain disease at the point of care, which means that instead of the patient coming to us, we go to the patient. The benefit of something like this uh, device, which you know doesn't require a central lab with you know all its 
uh, sophisticated equipment is that we can conduct mass population screening in even the rural areas. And if it's inexpensive, that helps accessibility as well. Because when you want to do screening, you know, you're talking about millions, um, not just because they're from rural areas, but sometimes it's it's a socioeconomic background as well. You know, if they need to work to, to support their family, then how will they take, take time off from work to leave their town and go to a bigger city where the facility or the test is uh, provided? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's the idea of something like, like the device. I like that idea of going to patients instead of patients going to doctors, right? Because... I guess a lot of people, including the people in the city, not only the people who are living in the uh, rural areas, right? They are not even aware that there is a cancer of such. And when they experience pain, they would just eat like painkillers and to solve yes. that, right? Yeah. Right. So um, let's talk about, you know, your the grants that you have recently received uh, by the Medica Awards. So uh, what are you going to do with the grant? Is it to develop something further? Yeah, so um, I, I got the Medica Award grant for international attachment mm-hmm. in 2021. Um, and with that grant, I got to go for a research attachment with um, Professor Andrew DeMello's research group in ETH Zurich, um, Switzerland. While I was there, we were, we were working on taking the, the essay. And the essay is basically... Uh, not not the writing essay, but like an essay to detect the essay with the air. <laughs> but it was a solution based one, so it's it's just similar to the COVID COVID nineteen test kit. If you recall, we have we have like a tube containing a buffer solution, and then you know you're supposed to collect your saliva sample and mix it. And then you're provided with a little pipette mm-hmm. and you're supposed to mix it yourself, you know. So, yeah, mine mine was in a liquid-based form as well. But the idea was, um, given Professor DiMello's expertise, his research group's experience, the idea was to convert that into something more physical, either a paper-based device or some other form of physical solid device. Yeah, uh, that was going to incorporate the essay into it. That's what I, I went there to start working on. At the moment, it's it's not completed because, let's face it, three months is a very short time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I'm very grateful to the Medica Award Grant for the opportunity to, to meet to meet the, the research group because it sets, sets up a foundation for future and ongoing collaboration, mm-hmm. which otherwise would not be possible if, you know, I had never met them. Can you imagine like just approaching someone halfway across the globe and say, Hey, I want to do this and I would like to collaborate with you. And, you know, the person has never met you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's very difficult if you if you want to collaborate with people overseas. And this attachment gives us the chance to do that. Great. Uh, I do want to talk more about what you're doing currently. Uh, but I'm. Uh, it's time for us to head into some messages. I'm here with Jessica Uisui-Ying. She's the PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. Do stay with us here on BFM 89.9. Backing feminist movements. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back. You're listening to Hervante. 
Podcast here on BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Lily Chai. I'm here with Jessica Uisuying. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. And her project revolves now around uh, developing a device to detect ovarian cancer. So before the break, we we're talking about her background. And uh, she received a grant by the Medica Awards to go for an international uh, attachment in Zurich. So what is a day-to-day, right, as a researcher? What is it like? Because in the image that I have, when I think about the word researcher, they sit in front of the computer a lot to do research, right, and read a lot of books. Is, is that what it is? Yeah, I think a, a, a lot of reading has to be done, and not just at the beginning, because the knowledge is constantly being updated. So my day basically consists of designing experiments so because I, I work with uh, DNA probes to to detect ovarian cancer microRNA, basically to design the sequences of the, the DNA requires the help of software, right? And um, after, after the initial design stage, a, a lot of planning goes into research as well. So if, you know, the reagents are not readily available, um, I also have to uh, contact a supplier or or my procurement department get quotations, you know, you know, look through for the best price because you know <laughs> you need, you need, you need you're, you're suddenly sales and researcher as well. <laughs> like you need to do everything. Yeah. So you know it was it's it's not very much different from being a pharmacist and I and I found that actually being a pharmacist helped me here because mm. when I was in a in a pharmacy, you know, inventory is a very big deal. So we have to keep going after that, running the experiments in the lab. That really depends on the season as well. In some seasons, probably sometimes I would, I analyze my data with a computer, think about the results before I go back to the lab. Hmm. You also need to be very motivated. You need to have prioritizing ability because you can kind of like get too wrapped up in one aspect of your project and then you, if you neglect others that uh, will impact you further down the road mm. you, you kind of need to juggle a lot of things as a researcher and on top of that as a PhD candidate we also have teaching duties it's not just all about our research project mm. and we also have um, a graduate school who helps to train us in other professional development matters Great. so like how do you give a presentation Besides, you know, the results of your research or the creation of solving a uh, creation of a solution to, to you know, uh, help with a problem like detecting ovarian cancer, for instance, like that is the outcome that you want. But it takes so many years to develop it. What is the, I guess, rewarding part of, of things, right? And and do you get paid enough, if you feel, to, to do this? <laughs> Um, so actually going to Switzerland was an eye-opener for me. This is the difference between Asia and, and Europe, I guess. It's, it's just working grant from an NGO. So that is the National Cancer Council Fund for research. It's a cancer research award in 2020. Mm-hmm. And this grant, I knew it when I applied, but and understandably as well, because it's a non-profit organization. So the research grant was only for consumables uh, and it wasn't meant for equipment or to pay any salary. I was receiving a stipend from the university um, but yeah I wasn't getting additional from the grant. It really depends so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming anybody because there are grants which include the salary as well. When I went to Zurich 
and that's that's when I realized how you know how big a difference uh, it is because um, over there they are actually compensated far far better for doing research, and then it shows in the output as well. In the, in the sense that collaborations are much easier to do over there. I mean, it's, it's way, way more over in Switzerland than, than in Malaysia, let's just say. And it makes uh, a difference yeah. in terms of your the whole process of your research, right? It helps so much in terms of, besides like the motivational side of things, like the, your mindset, you're more motivated to work. And another thing is you're able to get better facilities and equipment to help with the whole research process as well, right? Yeah. Hmm. But one thing that the UN actually found out was women are, uh, this is a research done all over the world, women are given smaller research grants than their male counterparts. And while women actually represent one third of all researchers, only 12% of national science academies are women. Now, how much truth is there to this statement? Uh, because there is also another Another part of it is saying that, you know, female researchers researchers actually have a shorter and a less well-paid career. What do you think about this? I don't really know the statistics that well, but I wouldn't have trouble believing it because of the fact that a lot of women have children, have, you know, they start a family and at the end of the day, most women are the ones who will sacrifice their career in order to, you know, raise their children. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's very honourable because they're raising the, the next generation. So I, I think that just because they decide to put their career on hold for a little while doesn't mean that they shouldn't be allowed to continue it later on in their lives. But I think that's the problem, like in STEM, for example, it's not easy to come back. And I think that's the reason why I chose pharmacy. So like going back to the, the whole re- to the, the initial reason for doing pharmacy, because my mother is a pharmacist. She had a flexibility by being a pharmacist that she could work part time uh, as a locum pharmacist. And so, you know, she would be available to take care of me and my brother, but she would also work when we were at school, for example. I think that's something I really value. But, you know, if, if you're an academic, you're a professor and you want to take that kind of time off from work to raise your child and then you want to come back and pick up where you left off as a professor, that's not going to happen, isn't it? So, yeah, um, I think maybe that's the reason why the statistics show it that way because women just are not given the opportunity to concentrate on their family but at the same time be, you know, be able to continue where they left off. If you, if you leave your career halfway and you want to come back, then obviously, you know, you're, you're less likely to get promoted compared to your male counterparts. You probably had less time to conduct research and amass publications, which are all important in, in getting a promotion. And maybe that's why it appears in the statistics that women are getting paid less hmm. overall. Right. Um, yeah. It applies all across the board, not only just in corporates, but in research as well, right? Especially yeah, when things right. are evolving so quickly in the science and technology field, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, there are still not enough researchers, I guess, because of the nature of work as well. As you mentioned, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. And it's not inflexible, rigid, like, like doctors. But at the same time, it still is not an easy occupation or a career overall um, because 
according to UNESCO data, only less than 30% of the world's researchers are women. There are still a lot of talks about, you know, how to improve the education system to attract more female students uh, into STEM or even STEAM now, right? But what do you think we're not doing right or we can do more in terms of education? I think there are two things at play. Maybe there's, there's still a bit of stereotyping in a sense. So parents or maybe society has uh, certain ideas of what females should uh, work as. Growing up, you, you kind of like re- receive all these like subliminal messages and you grow up thinking that that is what you, you want. But you didn't really have like a complete understanding of what the job entails and you weren't given an opportunity to explore other areas. I think girls in school should be exposed to um, subjects that are not necessarily female suited. You know, when I when I, when we went to school, we have a we have a subject called kemahiran hidup, right? Yeah. And um, you we, know, I think we chairs, I think, screwing things, and you know, all stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I went to an all girls school. Right. We had a few few sessions of you know like carpentry. Mm. Uh, some electronic, you know, like working mm. with some electronics or something. But I suspect it's, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg of what the guys in all boys schools were doing. Mm. And I really doubt that the boys went for home economics classes, like baking and sewing and all that. But we did. You know, that has to change. So, you know, if, if I'm a girl, I should be given a choice of home economics or, you know, doing something like electronics. Yeah, so you know, that's the, the, the thing. Um, another funny story I, when I was doing my attachment in Switzerland, um, I came across a course on microfluidics, which is, which is a very good concept for making devices, you know, small and compact. Because, you know, microfluidics is uh, talking about the movement of fluids in a small space. And, you know, as I said, my, my essay is fluid fluid-based, liquid-based, and we wanted to put it into a small, compact device, right? So, you know, microfluidics was something that theoretically could help us in achieving that. I, I was very fortunate that the, the man who was giving it, his name is uh, Dr. Emmanuel Delamarche. He's, he's very famous. Um, he worked with IBM Zurich for 20 over years, and uh, now he's in a startup company, which is also focusing on making sensors. And you will you will not believe how much knowledge on on um, so like electronics and semiconductors is required to understand something like this. Mm. Yeah, um, it's not it's not just physics and uh, like the physics that we learn in in school. Right. It was it was way deeper than that, and I I just tried my best to follow the course. It was very very interesting. Mm. But I also had a sense that, you know, it's going to take me a very long time to become an expert in this thing because, you know, of the foundation. I look back and I think that I would have liked to go deeper into, you know, traditionally male-suited mm. vocational classes. Yeah, and uh, I didn't have that opportunity, but I hope, you know, that in the future that that changes. Mm. And similarly for guys, I mean, if, you know, some some men... They make really, really good chefs and and bakers. I think if they want, they should be given a choice to to join home economics classes instead of, you know, maybe like electronics or carpentry if that is their interest. Mm. That's my, my point of view. <laughs> actually, my, my school, when I was in high school uh, 10 years back, uh, we actually had both, right? The first half of the year, 
the whole class, right? We are a mix of uh, males and females. We actually went together for baking classes, like cooking, <laughs> uh, cooking. Uh, and then the next week we we're making cupcakes. It was a very cute experience for all of us, and I guess none of us felt like you. You're you're a guy. Why are you baking cakes? Like none of that actually happened. And then when it came to us actually needing to build a chair from like four planks of woods, right? It was such a difficult time because the girls are like sewing the, the wooden planks, and it was so empowering for women, for mm. for girls to be doing that and actually make a sol- made a solid stool out of it. And I guess that is like the whole point of exposing them to everything that you can expose them to to let them know that they have options and choices out there and not just restricted to just the few stereotypes, the narrow thinking and the traditional narrative of what women and men can do, right? To wrap this up, you know, for researchers out there who are striving, including both male and females, what can we do together to bridge uh, gender equality in science and technology? Is there any, you know, biases that you have faced as well? I'm very fortunate to have received the medical award grant for international attachment. It was quite fair, really, if, if you look at five winners in my year and three of them were women, two were, two were men. I, I don't think that there was any gender discrimination, you know, based on my personal experience. Um, and then when I, when I received the Magnar Cancer Research Award, there was, you know, two, three, three women, including myself and one man, want it so yeah I don't I don't think that uh, I have been discriminated against because of my gender yes but I think uh, in terms of biases they definitely do exist uh, whether it's conscious or unconscious I think that there is a bias and I think I think it's important because let's face it the his, history shows that women were sidelined for example uh, Rosalind Franklin you know now we we credit her for the the discovery of the structure of DNA, but back in the day, she was uh, sidelined and her peers, Watson and Crick, they received the Nobel Prize, even though it was based on the picture that she took. And then interestingly, Rosalind Franklin um, also passed away due to ovarian cancer. Right. Yeah. And um, after she died, that's when her work work still wasn't recognized and Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for discovery. That's what I learned in school. Watson and Craig were the ones who discovered the yeah. DNA. Yeah. So, um, so you know, that's just one example, but there's countless others, like Jocelyn Bell, I believe her name. She's um, She is now credited with the discovery of something called pulsars. She, she studied, you know, something to do with the space. Mm. She told her supervisor about it. In the end, only her supervisor and somebody else got the Nobel Prize, and she didn't. In spite of in spite of that, when many many years later, when she was you know credited for the discovery as well, and she she won a really prestigious award, mm-hmm. instead of using that money just for herself and for her own enjoyment, she actually decided to channel that into a fund to sponsor uh, women in physics. So I think biases exist today as well. It might be somewhat more subtle, and I'll I'll give you an example. <laughs> there was a study that was uh, done. The title is uh, Faculty Science Loads Are Women Taking Care of the Academia Family? So basically, research found hmm. women in, in, in academia were 
more likely to perform more service for the faculty than their male counterparts. Yeah. What does that mean? Taking so, care. Um, so like anything that's non not non teaching or research related. Um, maybe it's uh, organizing conferences, seminars, right. or you know doing some additional extracurricular that would get good publicity for the school. And most of the time, that responsibility falls to the female academics rather than the male academics. Meaning to say, if I'm an associate professor and I have a colleague who is a, a male associate professor, hmm. then, you know, the research shows that the, the female associate professor was likely to be doing more <laughs> in terms of like non-teaching or research-related duties compared to the male counterpart whether or not their extra effort gets translated into promotions or that that we are not sure of but why why is that happening is it a case of are women just more reliable or is it just the case that men know how to say no and women feel like they can't say no they feel like they constantly need to prove themselves i think as women, being being empowered doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be a superwoman and take on more than you can or more than you need to. Even if you are capable, you have a right to say no. When you say no to something, you're actually implicitly saying yes to something else. And vice versa, if you say yes to something that's not very important, then you're actually saying no to something that is important to you and to your career. On that note, thank you so much for spending time with me today, Jessica. I've been mm-hmm. speaking to Jessica Uiswiying. She is a PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, and her project now revolves around developing a, a device to detect ovarian cancer. Uh, if you miss any part of this show, you can go ahead on our website at bfm.my or the BFM app that is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play to listen to the full conversation. I'm Lily Chai, and this has been Her Vantage here on BFM 89.9. Listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.